Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I'm the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin can mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, a quick message before we get into this, and I will make it quick because it's an incredible interview. I want to get straight to it. I do, however, want to take this time to give a shout out to Real Vision. $1 can unlock all of their content for 30 days. It's a no-brainer. Head over to realvision.com and go and check it out. Take advantage of this and um, get some knowledge. We, we all need uh, a lot more financial and economic knowledge right now, and this is the place to go and get it. Thanks, and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Today's guest on the show, none other than Saifedean Amus. Don't need to say anything more than that. Saif, thanks so much for, for spending the time and uh, coming on to speak to me. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure uh, chatting to you outside of class. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, right, and Lauren is here, co-host, and, and her twin brother, Samuel, today. Um, Hi, Lauren and Samuel. We've got uh, another nine-year-old Bitcoin question to ask um, our guest. Wait. You wanted to ask about the book? Why did you write your book? <laughs> I wrote my book because, um, uh, well, the short answer was that I was uh, finding myself talking about Bitcoin to people all the time and trying to explain to them why it's interesting and why I find it uh, important and why I think uh, it might be worth paying attention to. And so I just find myself writing a lot of emails and tweets and Facebook posts and messages to people trying to explain things to them. And uh, I decided um, I should just put this in writing um, in one place. And also um, another aspect of it was that I had uh, just had uh, my first daughter born and there was an element of uh, wanting to make sure that she knew what her daddy was thinking about and that there was one thing that I could give to her that, you know, she could really understand what I was saying about this at some point. Um, in case something were to happen to me, she'd always have this. So I think those really were the two main motivations, just writing about why explaining and putting in one place all of the ideas I had on Bitcoin, which I felt were um, a lot of ideas that needed to be put together, and which I also felt a lot of people had um, an interest in reading, at least within the Bitcoin circles. Um, and then the, the the pressure, well, not the pressure, but the, the 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 time preference shift of fatherhood that makes you want to produce things that last longer, and so you start thinking about uh, you know tweets and Facebook posts that will be forgotten in a week, versus producing something that um, will stick around that you could hand over to somebody twenty years later and they can read it and it could still make sense. Was that a good enough answer for you? Yes, that yeah. is. Thank did you. you. Did you have a Samuel uh, yeah. a question, Samuel? Come closer to the microphone, then, mate. Yeah. How do you know Bitcoin? How do I know Bitcoin? Um, well, nobody really knows Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a very weird animal. And I think uh, uh, very, very, very few people really understand what is going on. And you could even argue nobody understands 
entirely what is going on. I think uh, some people have made that argument, and I think I, I, I'm uh, I'm partial to it. I think there's just so much going on with Bitcoin, and so much needed to understand how it works technically, and how uh, what the implications of it are, and what it means, and how it is evolving. That nobody really knows how to bite into this monster. It's 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 like trying to eat a whale. You know, how do you eat a whale? Um, so you don't, you just start, uh, taking as many chunks out of it as you can and, uh, see what happens. <laughs> uh, so I've spent a lot of years, uh, reading about Bitcoin and researching it and uh, thinking about it and thinking about the implications of it. And in particular, I think my niche within the Bitcoin, uh, world is that I think about the Bitcoin from the lens of, um, a particular group of economists who um, aren't very famous, but uh, their ideas are quite interesting when applied to Bitcoin. And those guys are not from Australia. <laughs> as you <possibly> <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks very much, Safe. Thanks, guys, for your questions. Do you want to say goodbye? Bye. Bye-bye. I'll just switch my uh, headphones over. Thanks so much for uh, for answering those um, those questions. And uh, there's a lot to build on, actually, from from that. Um, and something uh, that I really wanted to talk to you about was um, time preference, because you um, y- you're becoming well very well known in the Bitcoin community for the, for that part of your book and how once people um, invest in Bitcoin, how that slowly just kind of grabs hold of them. But you lay it on top of it and you just, in your answer then, you said like the monumental uh, mindset shift when you become a first-time parent. I felt it 100% when I had my first kid and that's I advise people who are about to become new parents. I'm like, you have no idea how you're about to change. But could you just um, flesh that out a little bit for us, like um, time preference and family and... Uh, yeah, All that good stuff. I guess uh, before I begin, I should warn that you know economists tend to think about things in ways that can be uh, jarring and offensive to others. So, uh, trigger warning: you may not like the way that uh, I refer to those terms, and I may put them in, in in crude terms away from the kind of romanticism that people generally um, prefer to discuss those things. Yet, I think this kind of uh, uh, crude analysis helps understand. Uh, helps us understand why we uh, operate in those ways. Um, I think, yeah, um, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, but yeah, fatherhood changes you. And um, one of the ways in which it changes you, I think the most um, visceral way uh, it um, I understood it as an economist is uh, simply that it changes your time preference and it changes the period of time for which you are concerned and for which you want to provide. And so, you know, as a child, you're born as a child and um, you're unable to really understand the world and how the world functions and your time preference is very high. Your life, you know, you're you're barely able to comprehend the world beyond the scope of uh, the small little uh, tasks that you perform every day. Um, you don't need to provide for yourself. You don't need. You don't understand the harsh reality of life of how you need to provide and take care for yourself and think about the future. So, uh, as a four-year-old, you have no concern for what's go- well, what you should do as a ten-year-old. Um, you don't plan six years ahead. But then, as you get older, you know you start understanding that uh, your actions have consequences and. 
acting in a way that is uh, beneficial to your future will help you more and more in the future. And so you start becoming more and more aware of it. I think um, fatherhood in particular, and parenthood in general, motherhood as well, of course, um, I speak about fatherhood because it's the only one I've tried. But uh, parenthood in general um, changes that um, uh, or, or gives that time preference taking a massive jolt downward. It lowers your time preference significantly because um, in, in, in very crude term, a part of you, quite literally, a, a part of your body is now um, born in uh, as, as another human being and it's going to outlive you and it's going to live longer than you. And so... Um, you know, as a young, uh, a, a, as an adolescent and as a person in uh, your earlier life, you start developing the time preference to think about your own future, to think about your life 20 years from now, 30 years from now. You could start thinking in those terms. You choose a life partner because you want to spend the next 30, 40 years of your life with them. But then when you have a child, you're adding on another 20, 30, 40, 50 years to that calculus because you're concerned about their life. You want what's best for them. And uh, they're going to probably uh, outlive you. And so uh, if all goes to plan, they should be alive um, for a period that is longer than the period that to, in which you're alive. And so now the future for, with which you're concerned in terms of your decisions becomes longer. You start thinking about the world um, in a more long-term way. And I think um, th this is this is one way in which I like to understand how fatherhood changes people. Like uh, your entire outlook on how you spend your time changes because you're no longer just concerned about uh, immediate pleasures or things that make you happy today or next week or next month, but more about things that make you happy in the very long term. And how does that then um, tie in with uh, like the Austrian economic side of like your research into into that and the time preference? Yeah, um, so this is uh, one of my favorite topics in economics, and it's um, it's something that I discuss extensively in uh, my book, The Bitcoin Standard, as well as in uh, my uh, two new uh, uh, Principles of Economics courses, um, which you are taking, Daniel. Um, in the first one, we had a, we discussed that briefly, and then in the second one, just this week, we had a whole uh, you know, discussion of uh, time preference in particular. Um, the way that I like to think about it is, um, well, or I mean, my way of thinking about it was uh, influenced and was established through reading Austrian economists. Thinking about time preference from the lens of Austrian economists is. Um, really what was revelatory for me. So you, you hear about the concept from uh, mainstream economics and you hear about um, the concept of discounting rate, that, yeah, people discount the future, obviously, because they care more about today. And there is a rate at which they discount the future, but it's uh, not something that we dwell upon. It's like a factor that goes into the equations that um, we decide that the discount rate is two or three or five or whatever it is. <clears throat> And then once you have that as a given, then you do a bunch of mathematical calculations to try and figure out um, economic decision-making um, in certain contexts. But from the Austrian perspective, time preference is a very, very uh, pivotal and foundational uh, concept. And it's, it's, it's an axiomatic uh, concept. The idea that humans prefer the present over the future 
is um, is axiomatic according to Mises because it's um, it's it's clearly demonstrable through the fact that humans act and the fact that humans choose to consume at all shows that they are not indifferent between consumption today and tomorrow. And so you can see it just simply from observing how humans act. You can see that this is a universal um, a, a universal facet of human action, the preference for earlier over later goods. And there are psychological reasons for it. Um, and there are many ways in which we can understand how it happens. Um, primarily, I think the best way to understand it psychologically is that we have a time preference because we are mortal, because we die. And so because we're going to be dying one day, we realize, and because we don't know when we're going to be dying. So um, there's always a risk that you might die. There's always a risk that your life might end. And so there's always a preference for taking things now rather than um, waiting and then not getting to experience them. And so um, from within Austrian economics, this is, um, this is an important concept because as we be discussing in next week's class. Um, it's from the perspective of Austrian economics, time preference is what determines interest rates. Uh, so interest rates are based on people's time preferences. And um, beyond that also, it's... Uh, <clears throat> so being that it determines interest rate, it also determines how much people will be saving and how much people will be consuming. And so time preference is a very, very important factor in... Um, economic decision-making across the board. And um, what's interesting is looking at uh, research from psychology um, and um, sociology over the 20th century. Um, you know, these Austrian economists were writing about these concepts in the early 20th century, and then we have many decades of research and um, scholarship on uh, these concepts, and we start seeing just how much the significance of this is... Um, repeated and studied from many different perspectives and many different uh, methodologies. Without getting too much into the details of the academic debate, I've found just thinking about the concept to be extremely uh, extremely useful and um, help, helpful uh, in life in general. One, one thing that um, you know, you, you've said in your course was about, um, and it really resonated with me, it's about now... Uh, you, you know, you're, you're making everything you do is a trade with your future self. And I like, bam, that just hits you. So if you could uh, just, um, you know, go on uh, that tangent for us. Yeah, um, I think once I started really understanding the concept of time preference from the Austrian perspective on understanding just the idea that you're constantly making trade-offs with your future self, it's one of those things that once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's just really, really hard to, uh, you start noticing it everywhere. You start seeing it in everything. So in every decision that you take, you realize that there's a short run benefit um, from what you're doing and there is a long run benefit or cost involved with it. And so you start, once you start becoming conscious of this, it really helps you start making better decisions in my mind because it just uh, um, awakens you to the nature of the uh, decision and uh, to, to the nature of the trade-off that you're constantly doing with yourself. And I think the, the, the amazing thing about it is that it focuses your brain on the fact that you need to focus on yourself. You are your most important ally in life. Everything that you want really is ultimately 
um, influenced very, very strongly by your own time preference, by how you deal with your uh, future self and how you prioritize its needs versus your present self. Because if you think about it, this is uh, in, in, in every aspect of your life. You know, if you're a student, um, you choose to satisfy your immediate um, needs of hanging out with your buddies, partying, enjoying life, then you're not going to be doing very well in the exam and you're going to be suffering the consequences later. And so this is generally how I always uh, try to lead with explaining the concept in classes when I used to teach at university, that every student experiences this. You know, when it's the beginning of the semester, you don't have a test the next day. You don't feel the pressure to study, so you don't study in because there are more interesting things going on in life. You'd rather hang out and enjoy university and um, do the things that offer you uh, happy rewards, happy points on the on the spot, you know, rather than study for an exam that is three months away. And so you, if you don't think of the final exam that is three months away, if you're not prioritizing it, if you're not thinking about it seriously, then um, you continue to take the decisions every day that benefit you on the spot. And then when the exam comes, you know, you haven't done the three months of studying that you needed. And then you find yourself cramming the night of the exam. You find yourself unable to really get the, the, the kind of studying that you would like to get. And it's because of all of the skimping before. But then you start seeing this in pretty much every aspect of life. It's not just with your exams. It's with everything that you do with other people and with um, economic decision making and with um, your family decisions. Every decision you take involves consequences on the short run and on the long run. And I think, um, you know, the, the the more conscious you are of this, this is for me, it's the most important lesson that economics could teach you. You know, more important than anything about uh, money and um, capital and how an economy works is just what happens in your own internal economy. Once you're able to really think of this as just something that you control, so something that is within your own locus of control, something that you are able to influence, something that you determine, and you understand how consequential it is to um, all aspects of your life, then you begin to think, uh, then you really find it, I think, um, helpful toward making the right decisions that benefit you in the long run and helpful also towards making the correct kind of choices and the correct kind of sacrifices and making you really just realize that um you know you're you're trading off with yourself so just make your own decision about what it is that you want and stick to it if you want to pass the exam then study for it but if you find yourself not wanting to pass the exam maybe you shouldn't be taking this course maybe you shouldn't be at a university um i think it's really important that you do the correct calculus and understand that you're discounting this and then you can you're discounting the exam heavily so you should ask yourself is it because you don't care about the exam or is it because you're discounting it heavily if you're discounting it heavily then you should become more aware of it and become aware of the fact that you need to study every week so that when the exam comes you're ready for it but if you're not if it's not a matter of discounting then maybe you should just shouldn't be taking it so i think it it helps in these kind of problems of procrastination and motivation because it just puts the calculus uh clearer uh, for you that um 
you need to be aware of how much you're discounting. And of course, there's nothing wrong with discounting the future. We all discount the future. Um, time preference is always positive. The question is, by how much do we discount it? That's really the interesting uh, point. And I think it's it's astonishing um, the way it changed my life once I started thinking about this. Once I just stopped trying to control things that don't uh, that I can't control, and stopped trying to think of my life as being controlled by things outside of my control, and tried to focus on the things that I can control, and in particular tried to think about the long-term goals that I want to do that I'm not being able to achieve because of the very high discounting that I'm applying to those long-term goals because of all of the day-to-day chasing the dopamine hit of the day rather than investing in the uh, big um, rewards of the things that really matter to you in the long run. And shifting that focus into the long run, I think, is... um, is is the most powerful thing that comes from this time preference concept. And it's why every class that I've taught in university, in 10 years of university, no matter what the topic of the class, I always sneak in one lecture about time preference. I always make sure to do it. And I tell the students, you know, uh, pay attention to this. This might be the most important thing you learn. And many of them come back to me many years later telling me, that really was the most important thing I've ever learned in university. Once I just started thinking about it this way, I I think it is it's it's very powerful. I think it's also very liberating. One more thing is, it's the liberation of understanding that you're are you are your own worst enemy and you are your own best friend. You are the one that's going to determine your own outcomes because, in the long run, um, on any one of those issues, on any one of the um, on any one of the ways in which you are taking decisions on or in any of those decisions um, or in any avenue of your life in the long run uh, yes there are many other factors that will come into play but i think the time preference will eventually impose itself in other words if you if you're constantly prioritizing the present and constantly ignoring the future then one day the future that is going to come is not going to be very nice. And it doesn't matter how much the rest of the world tries to help you. You know, it doesn't matter how blessed you are. And this is, you know, think of all the rock stars or athletes who have um, enormous amounts of money coming to them because of their incredible talents. But as long as you're geared towards satisfying your happiness needs today and not focusing on the future, it's incredible how much money they can get through. They can spend more money than... They had even known what they uh, than they could even imagine owning before they became uh, high-earning uh, professionals. And so, um, if you continue to prioritize your future, if you continue to provide for the future, yes, you know you may not be talented, and things might be terrible, and you might have a very hard life. And obviously, there are no guarantees. But in the long run, I think. In your own life, you'll see enough stories of people who fit this, that, you know, they've worked their way up against all the odds, against all um, terrible um, circumstances that face them. They've managed to work their way up to be able to um, defeat those things. And I think, ultimately, if you just continue to um, plan for the future, eventually that future is going to arrive and you'll benefit from it. And so... um, realizing that really your struggle in everything in your life is primarily about your struggle with yourself 
is enormously liberating and, and, and very productive because then you can just get to work on yourself and yourself is one thing that you can, you can change, you can control at least. And it's much better than, um, you know, demanding things from others and um, placing blame on others and continuing to expect things from others. Yeah, completely. And I'm sure that's going to resonate with a lot of people that, um, you know, find themselves in work situations or work scenarios that, you know, it happened to me, right? You know, one day I woke up and I was 18 years into a career and I just painted myself into this corner because it was just like, you know, just chase, 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 try and keep up with absolutely everything. Um, and then, you know, kind of like looking into the future and five, 10 years out and what's that going to look like? Uh, that's when I really started uh, making a change. Um, so with, with, with you personally then, did, you know, you, you're lecturing about this kind of stuff and you know it deeply. Uh, I've got two questions um, to, to ask you about this. Um, one, you know, at what point was it this kind of thinking that, that made you realize that uh, you wanted to um, like leave a, a normal classroom and start trying to build your own business online? Um, for like uh, future and two, having this knowledge about time preference and having, um, you know, a young family around you and trying to teach our kids as I'm trying to do, you know, we're faced, these kids, these poor kids are just faced with high time preference stuff all the time. Yeah. And like you said at the beginning, they're just not, you know, they're four, like they're, they're, they're eight, they're whatever, then, you know what influence can we have? And it must be really difficult for you because, you know, you have this in-depth knowledge about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm still, uh, an, uh, I'm still a first time amateur parent. I'm not a professional parent. Uh, I don't do, uh, parenting professionally so take everything that i'm saying uh, um uh, do your own research and take it um uh, you know uh, uh, this is not parenting advice i'd say I, I i struggle myself with this question with how it is that uh, you could teach this and of course um you know w w with a lot of things with parenting you don't want to um you, you don't want to try and force this and then make it into something that becomes uh um, uh, unacceptable to the child. Um, but yes, it's, um, it's uh, w with, with, with kids these days, you know, it's impossible to be bored. It's impossible for a kid to, um, not have something, um, entertaining them right now, offering them a quick dopamine hit now, whether it's, uh, TV or video games or um, all these uh, spectacular uh, explosive kinds of uh, sugar bombs that uh, kids these days eat. There's just, uh, because of the incredible advancement in technology, we are becoming so much better at giving uh, children the things that make them happy. And for children, um, they don't have the ability to think, as we said, uh, as I was saying earlier, very much about the long run. So left to their own devices, they could uh, eat uh, Twinkies and watch TV all day, um, which is not going to make for ideal uh, <laughs> development. And of course, it's, it's, it's a very big struggle trying to get them off the Winkies and the TV, off the Twinkies and TV um, and, and trying to do other things. Um, in my mind, I think uh, 
I've one way I try and do it, and I'd be interested if any of the, your listeners has any thoughts on this, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. And if you have better suggestions, please let me know. One way that I try and do it is to try and just constantly um, vocalize to my daughter the issue of uh, um, having to wait and patience and how patience is good. And how, you know, one thing that I always repeat to her is good things happen when we wait, good things happen when we wait. And I hope that continuously drubbing in this habit of, oh, there's something that I really like, but, um, you know, notice that we can't just have it right now. We have to first do this or do that. Um, one concept that I always like to emphasize is um, we can't do what we want to do until we do what we have to do first. So if she's asking for one of those kinds of things and this can sound maybe a little bit cruel, but like anytime she wants to ask me for something that I'm not very keen about giving her, and I also don't want to um, start a fight where I put my foot down and say, no, you're not going to get this, I'll uh, preface it with something along the lines of, okay, well, if you want to do that, first we have to do what we have to do before we do what we want to do. And so, you know, finish cleaning up uh, the toys that you were playing with or um, some, some shore or the other, something that she has to do. And so constantly making her understand that life isn't just all of these wonderful uh, treats that just come to you at a press of a button and not being the parent that just because I love my daughter that I want think of love, uh, 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 that I want to make this love um, uh, or, or the way that I express it for her is through just satisfying all of her needs and making and giving her the perception that the world is all is, is there at the click of a button because that's not going to be the world because I'm not going to be around forever for her. And, uh, you know, she's going to start at some point needing to um, understand that she needs to provide for herself and take care for herself. So I try and drop this in and, and, and uh, enter it into their mind as early as possible. Um, but uh, I'm, I'd be interested in your ideas and what others uh, might have to say. Excellent answer. Well, um, yeah, let's hope uh, people reach out, um, find safe on Twitter and uh, let's share the ideas and let's get an open discussion going because uh, parents around the world, are, we're all trying to think of uh, different ways to do this, especially now we're all locked in our homes. Although I don't know, are you on lockdown wherever you are? Uh, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, now, if I bring it all the way back to the beginning when you answered Lauren's question about why did you write your book and you were saying, you know, I, I, I wanted to have something uh, for my daughter so I could get all my thoughts down and, um, and your other kids when, um, when and if they ever come along. Um, I don't know, man. Do, do you realize, like, have, has, like, the penny, has the sat dropped that I believe, and many other people believe, that your book's going to be studied in hundreds of years' time? <laughs> and I'm not blowing smoke up your ass. Like, I honestly, honestly, honestly believe that. Uh, did, do you ever think about that? I mean, I, you're not the first one to say it, but I'm a little skeptical. I think um, 
I think uh, at some level, maybe the, the novelty of Bitcoin, I, I can see it going either way. Whatever happens, I can see that, that, that most likely, uh, I'd say my book won't be studied in a few hundred years. Because if Bitcoin fails for whatever reason, then uh, this crazy idiot who thought the world could be run on magic internet beans. And if Bitcoin succeeds, it's just going to be one of many, many, many books about Bitcoin when Bitcoin just becomes something about money. So I think it's, it's um, it, Bitcoin, if it succeeds, is not going to be something like uh, the internet or Facebook or iPhone or McDonald's or Coca-Cola. It's not going to be this, um, this amazing consumer experience where every day you're telling your friends about how awesome your new iPhone is. It's going to be more like the sewage system, <laughs> more like the uh, the electricity, you know. Uh, people underestimate how important the sewage system is, the plumbing, um, but it really is maybe the most important thing that we have today. And uh, but you know, we're we're constantly talking about the things that make us happy, that add happiness, that uh, that have novelty. We're talking about our iPhone. We're talking about uh, the new cars and the new computers and the new uh, TVs. We th we see these as the uh, new innovations because obviously you know it's, it's it's a consumer experience. So I think Bitcoin is not like that. Eventually, um, you know, the, the, I think Bitcoin is going to be used as seamlessly as money is used in all different kinds of shapes and forms. It's going to be a seamless digital experience, and I would say probably also a seamless physical experience that you'll have physical coins maybe or papers or um, little objects denominated in Bitcoin that are quite reliable and so on. So in that regard, you know, um, yeah, in a few hundred years, uh, Bitcoin will be like plumbing and I'll be the guy who wrote the book about, uh, you know, how plumbing is going to be cool at some point. And yeah, maybe it'll be in some <laughs> museum where they... Uh, where they talk about the pre-plumbing problems. You know, this is what happened before we invented financial plumbing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I don't believe that. But, uh, you know. Um, right, so if we go back to uh, the other part of the question then, um, when you were uh, lecturing about time preference, um, you know, how did that affect your your decision to to move away from teaching ultimately? I think um, a part of it was the fact that um, being at a university today, um, and I think uh, academics would sympathize with this, is um, to to a large extent has uh, um, you don't feel much ownership for what you do, and you don't feel much uh, appreciation of the fact that you're producing something that's actually valuable for people for people, and so. Um, you know, a lot of your work as a university professor is to publish things, not so that they can change the world or so that many people can read them or so that it can benefit people. It's so that it gets into academic journals that nobody reads and nobody really cares about. And it's really, uh, you know, these th these articles are judged for your uh, promotion file and in in. In, in, in completely brutal, uh, it, it's almost like you're buying uh, them by the dozen or in, in quantities. You know, you have two articles in this kind of journal and three articles in that kind of journal. So that translates to this many points and that many points. And then you add them up and then you get a, 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 a score. Uh, score 
and then if that score is high enough you get promoted and if it's not so it's it's um it's become highly uh, mechanized dehumanized and um it's I, I i don't mind i should clarify it's not that i mind the fact that it's a big institution and as much as i think that the incentives are screwed up by the by um by, in my opinion, government financing, which makes it so that, uh, you know, you need to establish objective criteria for um, for funding. And so then it's, um, you know, the, 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 um, the, 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 there is a scientific establishment wherein um, you need to be part of the rules, you need to play by the rules, you need to speak the same language in order to be let in and to be given the financing and the funding. And so... Academic publication has, for many decades, optimized away from usefulness and into esotericism and into um, uh, jargon and uh, closing up our discussions into journals that nobody reads. And then it's you know it's it, it's like what happens when small populations get uh, isolated and their accents. Um, begin to develop into separate languages if they isolate from the rest of the population. Um, This is kind of what happens in academia. If you look at most academic journals today, they've, in in many cases, they've lost contact with the topics uh, with which they discuss because a lot of the publication is just simply about continuing to, um, because, you know, the success in the field is not judged by a free market of ideas where everybody puts their work out in the open and people read work of everybody and people judge it. And, you know, people who have good ideas will have their ideas um, succeed on the marketplace and people who read their ideas will make good decisions and benefit from them and people who don't won't. And so in that kind of free market system, you'd have a meritocracy that produces more, um, better outcomes for people who are uh, producing things that are valuable. But when you have an academic system wherein the um, reward mechanism or wherein the salaries and the promotions are assigned centrally from the institution itself, you know, it is the university itself um, and, it, and it is the academics themselves who dis- who read each other's work and who decide on each other's um, peer review and who get into each other's journals and who decide on each other's promotions and who decide on each other's research grants. So I think, uh, you know, a great metaphor would be to imagine if you had, uh, imagine if we had a similar system for the production of cars where where let's say in Germany you would have a council of car makers and the six or seven big German car makers would meet there and then if you um, you know, if you wanted to make a car, you had to be approved by them to jo- join the council of car makers. They get to decide who gets to compete with them. And they get to decide between themselves who gets to produce how much of what and who gets to, um, you know, which cars are approved. Imagine if there was a committee of car producers that was deciding what gets uh, produced as cars and then they put it out on the market and people um, just have to take it this is kind of what was the car situation in east germany um it was an internal committee that made its own rules and it didn't face market feedback so academia in a sense i think is like that that it's uh, you know you write things in academic journals 
not because anybody reads them. I think the average academic paper gets something like seven uh, people reading it or something like that. So nobody reads any of that stuff, even though it takes many years to churn out one of those articles. It's and 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 it's deeply demoralizing when you when when you think about it that you know you're working, working, working in order to get a paper in a journal and then nobody reads it. And then you think. Um, yeah, this is a very long-winded answer to get to the point that I was saying, making, which is that you realize that the opportunity cost of this is that you not it's not just that the time is gone and you spent all of this time on producing an article, um, but it's that you could have been spending that time on producing an article that could be read by others. You could be producing stuff that uh, people value, that people um, pay for, that people, uh, you know, um, will read. And I think by being out in the market, by being able to read and write and teach in a real uh, setting of free market with prices and uh, price feedbacks, I think you're better able to... um, learn from people and from the market what it is that people want and how you can make your work better like this is this is something that i also understood from studying austrian economics and the concept of entrepreneurship like entrepreneurship what it ultimately well ultimately is a big word but a big part of it is the fact that when you're when you're out there in the market taking risks and making things happen and and opening um businesses and introducing new products every moment you're getting feedback from consumers they're telling you this thing sucks they're telling you this thing is great they're telling you this thing is nice but it's too expensive and they don't even have to tell you in words obviously you just see what happens you put things up for sale and you see how they sell and you realize maybe this is too expensive maybe this was uh the quality wasn't as good maybe i should improve this maybe i should improve that you see what they want you see what they don't want and that's what gives you the ability to give them what they like. And that's what it gives you the ability to be productive. And academia, to a very large extent, deprives you of that because you can't write for people that will benefit from your writing. You write for people who already know exactly what you're writing about. And you're just, uh, you know, you're writing to impress them. And it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's demoralizing because 20 years from now, nobody's going to remember that article. Not even 20 years, but in two years from now. And um, you're not getting any kind of real feedback. And this is, I think, a crisis that uh, many academics live in denial about, which is that your career consists of publishing research that is not really very valuable to the world. A lot of academics will joke about this, but... I think, you know, if you're stuck producing things for the committee of people that are going to just use it in order to weigh your promotion file and rather than producing it for the people who um, need to read it, then you're not going to be, uh, your entire career, you're going to be headed away from trying to produce something that is useful for people. And so for me, um, wanting to go out and, and use the internet, essentially, the way that I understand it, from my perspective, I mean, when when I've spoken before about this in, in previous interviews or on my um, website, I express this from uh, usually from the perspective of the student and the benefits of um, online education for the student. But I think also from from the perspective of the professor, it's just a highly efficient way of doing more for more people, interacting with more people and being able to get more uh, feedback and being able to produce more. Yeah, a perfect example. And I'm um, 
I can vouch for that because uh, I'm. I've, is this the second course that I'm? Uh, I've taken and. I found them to be uh, extremely helpful, and you know, you're always on hand to to answer the questions um, and to flesh any of those ideas out, and to share that with with the people that are asking the questions, and that helps, of course, refine your own thinking. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for doing those; they're, they're brilliant, uh, really, really great, really enjoying them. Um, and if we stick to like writing again, and you know, clearly a low time preference. Um, project to enter into is writing a book because it takes a hell of a lot of time but you are writing a second one is that correct and um you're you're doing it in a different fashion though you're you're inviting other people in yes at the point of writing right could could you explain exactly you know this this the thoughts behind that yeah i think uh, that's a a very similar uh, uh, concept to what i was mentioning earlier in terms of getting feedback uh, you know, academia is a way of facilitating feedback, peer review. It was a very good way of improving the quality of publication by uh, making sure that other people who knew what was going on in this field would get to read uh, something before it's published and then uh, make adjustments or reject it or approve it. And so that was a seal of approval. That's, um, peer review was a great way uh, to increase the um, quality control around publications in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. <laughs> but by the 21st century, it's become a way that massively um, limits the amount of review. So peer-reviewed articles are not read by anybody because they're put behind extremely expensive paywalls that are not, um, you know, you, you, most people would have to pay something like $30 to read one academic article. And so most people don't, and very, very few people do. And so there's, uh, you know, in order to keep peer review to the experts and to ensure that experts see it, it's become, with, uh, as technology has developed, peer review has become a closing process um, and it, it, it reduces the amount of exposure. And for me, this is an idea I had had many years ago, um, but I thought with this book, it would be ideal to do it. Instead of um, writing the book and then getting the drafts sent to other people who will read them and then give me feedback, I think the internet allows us to do this much more efficiently, which is that I can post the draft online as I am working on it and progressing on it. And uh, people can go and they can see the outline, they can see the structure, and they can look into the um, um, all of the book and read it and give me any feedback as we go along. And I think this is uh, this is a much more efficient way because you know I'm spotting mistakes very early on. I'm getting very good and useful feedback uh, very early on, so you know I don't have to make. Uh, uh, the, the, you know, there are adjustments that I could make now and uh, won't require a lot of editing as opposed to if I had waited until uh, I'd built upon that structure, say, and then gotten a reviewer for it. So it works out much better. And I think this um, this model of um, direct interaction between author and reader is... Uh, is is better. I think we, we a world in which we have thousands of professors teaching online in thousands of different platforms and ways and, um, and topics and contents is a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, not everybody's going to be great, but people who are uh, people who are will succeed more, and people who aren't will get great feedback about how to uh, change. 
and I think um, this, uh, yeah, it's um, it's it's a great thing. And you get, uh, you know, if you if you get if you purchase the access to this, you get a signed copy of the book. For me, this is a much more um, efficient way of uh, running the publication of a book than uh, what happens generally in. Uh, in universities where you have to apply for research grants and um, these things can end up taking up so much time and end up imposing all kinds of restrictions on your work. And I think, uh, you know, the, the, the internet obsoletes so much of that and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of it. And um, academia has for the past 10, 20 years managed, uh, well, not managed, but they, they've tried to very... Um, uh, they try to resist online education and the encroachment of technology by denigrating it and by making it uh, appear that it's you know well it's not useful. But I think ultimately, um, you know, education is not about grades. Education is not about certificates. Education is about learning things that are useful. And there, the internet allows you to learn things from others directly through talking through software um, at the far, far lower cost than having to sign up for a university and meeting up physically. And so because of this massively lower cost, it becomes much more likely that uh, people are going to find ways of uh, building this thing. And I think there are uh, enormous efficiencies to be explored there. And is this um, the Bitcoin standard too? Part two? Is it? <laughs> oh no, the book. The next one is uh, going to be the principles of economics, and it's based on the uh, it's based on the courses that uh, we're doing right now. Principles of economics. Uh, so it's um, it's uh, you know each course has ten lectures, and each one of these is going to more or less go into one chapter in the book, um, describing the main concepts in economics. I think and it's, um, th th there isn't really a proper um, modern textbook from the Austrian perspective. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, the Austrian textbooks or the closest things to a uh, textbook that we have are a little bit old and a little too, uh, uh, well, too hefty. And they include a lot of stuff that's not very, uh, very easy for uh, modern readers to associate with. So I'm trying to take the work of Menger, Mises, and Rothbard, and boil it down into um, language that is relatable for people today. <laughs> yes, for sure. All right. So, last question about um, time preference, and uh, then we'll close it up uh, because I've taken up much of your time. Thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. And just to bring it back around to back around to Bitcoin and Bitcoin time preference. So, how you see or how you describe that, um, you know, the time preference and Bitcoin kind of like uh, go hand in hand or how you kind of um, uh, like to think about that? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's something that I had noticed myself, but I thought it was because maybe I was just the one who was obsessed with time preference. But then even before my book was published, it was quite astonishing the number of people in the Bitcoin space who would have the same kind of story to tell, which is, I found Bitcoin and uh, <laughs> I quit drugs and now I put all my drug money into Bitcoin. Or I found Bitcoin and now I no longer go drinking five days a week and I only do it two days a week and I put the money into Bitcoin and now my life is much better. It's amazing. There's so many tweets um, uh, along these lines of people. Uh, so one of my favorite was one guy who said, 
a hangover is Satoshi's way of reminding you of all the sats that you could have stacked instead. And <laughs> um, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I'm astonished that this is beginning to, uh, even at such an early stage of Bitcoin, people are beginning to, to grasp this. But in my mind, if we had a hard money and people were living in a situation where they see a money that is truly scarce and that is um, appreciating in value over time, they become much more careful about what they do with their money because there's now this default option, which is that if you just don't do anything, you don't have to invest, you don't have to take on a risk, you don't have to put money with an investor and uh, hope that he brings it back. All you have to do is just um, you know, hold on to money, gold coins, for instance, and over time, it'll appreciate in value or at least it'll hold on to its value. So if you have that situation, then there's always... The record, there's always the idea that I don't need to spend this. I, if I don't really like this thing, I don't need to spend on it right now. I can wait later. So you save and you um, defer consumption. And Bitcoin is already beginning to do that with people, I think, at this point, even though it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's still uh, extremely volatile and it can drop. But because of the fact that it is scarce and because it can appreciate, people start to appreciate the opportunity cost. And this is really, I think, the flip side of this is that fiat money ruins people's concept of opportunity cost. Most people just have no understanding of opportunity cost because they don't think that um, they don't think that, uh, uh, well, it's not that they don't think, but it's just that because money is very cheap and it's very easy to come along, interest rates are very low um, and it's very easy to borrow. And if you hold on to your money, it's not going to hold on to its value. Most likely it loses value over time. So people are constantly uh, getting rid of their cash and they don't think much about saving it. And... Um, as a result, we see, uh, you know, and, and, and then the political aspect of it, which is that we have this government that can print money out of thin air. And then that just gives people the idea that if you don't have enough money, it's just because you're not friends with the, the printers. And if you were the one who was in charge of the printer or if you were, you were friends with the people who were in charge with the printer, then you would not be poor. You would have all the money that you would need because then you could just print it. So... Uh, you know, fiat money is terrible for uh, making people understand time preference in my mind. Uh, sorry, making people understand opportunity cost. And then uh, Bitcoin, I think, is is better at that. And then uh, once you do that, I think you, you start thinking about the future. And it's amazing because then all of these other things um, in your life start falling into place because you start thinking more and more about the long term. And so um, I think this might be more than anything why my book um, struck a nerve with a lot of people. Well, maybe struck a nerve is the wrong term. Why my book um, became popular with a lot of Bitcoiners because I think uh, this this idea that the your first of all just thinking about the powerful concept of time preference was new for many people, and then thinking about the link between that and money, uh, and then particularly in the context of people who have moved from other money into Bitcoin. I think that was really what was uh, interesting. Yeah, completely. Okay, final question. And I ask this on uh, on each show. And it's um, it goes along the lines of if you can implant your knowledge that you've learned about Bitcoin, which is, I mean, let's be fair, a shit ton, and um, could uh, Im implant that in somebody um, who could reach a far wider audience than yourself to go and teach other people about Bitcoin, who would that person be and why? 
Or I guess we could just say, who would you love to read your book and then go and share that, that message about Bitcoin to their audience to reach as many people as possible about the opportunity of, of hard money and sound money and low time preference? Hmm. I mean, I'm going to go with Lionel Messi, probably one of the most popular people in the world. If he were to uh, tell the world to check out my book, I think a lot of people would read it. Um, I mean, can you think of somebody who has a bigger reach than Messi? It's pretty big. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure a lot of Cristiano Ronaldo fans are going to be upset about this. And without getting into a Ronaldo versus Messi football debate, I'll just say that the argument for Ronaldo might just be that um, he, he's more of a public figure than Messi, so he might do a better job uh, shilling my book. So I guess it's a toss-up between Ronaldo and Messi, and football fans, let me know who do you think <laughs> would do better. <laughs> or football fans, just swag bomb Messi and Ronaldo a, uh, a, a copy of, um, of Safe's book, and hopefully they'll read it, and then instead of shilling hair gel that she'll uh, <laughs> some actual something of worth to the young people and uh, that, that are following them but um, yeah. safe mate thanks so much for your time this has just been incredible I can't believe I'm actually sitting here you know having this conversation with you so I really really appreciate it been loving the courses as you know and um, thanks for all of your work thank you so much Daniel have a good day well thanks so much again to Safe Dean for taking the time to do this incredible interview with me. We, we spent uh, a lot of time putting this together and um, it, it's not often he has this time to give up. So I really do appreciate him uh, spending this time and uh, talking about these things. The time preference, when I talk about Safe's book with people, with people that have read it and with people that I'm, I'm recommending to read it, this is the, t- this is the topic that comes up um, most of the time. This, this, time preference and understanding how changing your mindset can change your life and understanding how Bitcoin has that ability to to change your mindset. Um, Most people have found that um, once they've started buying their first Bitcoin and investing into it and holding it and learning more about it, that just naturally over time, their time preference for things start going down. And that is the power of hard and sound money. When you realize you're holding something that is going to potentially increase in value over time, you want to put more time and resources, first of all, into learning about that, but then into uh, accumulating more of that, uh, stacking sats, as you uh, would probably have, have heard it called. As more and more people come in to, to the realization that, that Bitcoin is an asset that they should be looking at, which is happening, I'm getting asked questions now every day from people that I never thought would ever ask me questions about it. Uh, it, it is slowly happening. People are asking more questions and they want to know more about it. As more people come into it and as more people's time preference changes, the global, the global change we're going to see, the, the global shift is going to be huge. It's going to be tangible. It's going to be incredible. Um, and this is what excites a lot of Bitcoiners and a lot of people that are already in the space because they can see this 10-year plan, 20-year plan, however long it's going to take, that once people can start saving value and storing value, 
and changing their time preference and changing their behaviors, it affects everything, every decision you make. It just slows everything down. It takes, honestly, it takes away a lot of anxiety. So I really appreciate Safe coming on and talking about that and really, really getting to like the, the crux of it all. Um, because obviously you can read the book and you can come away and like, oh, right, yeah, that time preference thing, that makes a lot of sense. But to actually hear him talking about it in such a fashion, I think is going to go a long way to helping people um, understand more about uh, the Bitcoin um, effect and more about this time preference theory. And I think it gives a... Um, Gives us a nice look into um, into safe himself. Uh, you know, he's we've all heard him before on many different podcasts. I'm sure if you haven't, go and check out as many as you can because every single one I learn something new. Uh, and you know, many of us have been exposed uh, to him by by reading his book. But to to actually hear him um, talking about this and um, getting a little bit deeper into his personality, I think were. Was really well. It was, it was great for me um, to sit and, and have this conversation with him, and I hope um, everybody out there listening to it has gained something from this. And if you haven't already, go check out the book. Uh, head over to his website. Um, he's got many more resources over there. I've been sitting his courses. I think they're incredible value, like eighty to a hundred dollars to sit down for a ten week course. You're on uh, a call twice a week uh, with Safe. And one of those calls, you get to interact with the rest of the students um, and Safe himself in a Q&A uh, over, all over Zoom. It's really interactive. It's cool. You learn absolutely loads. You make great connections. Um, and you get to speak to Safe and ask him what's on your mind and um, get get his take on, on things, which uh, I think is awesome. And, you know, this is the way education is, is, is heading, right? Uh, we can now – we're all on lockdown – we have more time than we've ever had before. People are going to take this chance to start educating themselves in areas they never have ever questioned before. And again, I think this is going to be an incredible like post-virus world where many people are sitting at home learning things they've never been exposed to, finding things they've got a huge interest in that they never ever knew they would ever be interested in and coming out the other side of this people are gonna they're not gonna stop asking questions this is going to be a huge shift and i think um for the positive as well so yeah watch this space watch out for the next episode thanks for tuning in um reach out to safe via twitter whenever you uh, whenever you can say thanks for coming on the show for supporting the show share this episode with anyone that you can think of that um that is worried about the future, that is worried about, um, you know, money, <laughs> who isn't, uh, because this might help them, uh, like, slow down their mind a little bit and slow down the thinking, slow down the behaviors and um, get into better habits um, or at least understand a little bit more about uh, time preference. Thanks for listening, guys. Um, you can reach me on Twitter at Princey1976. Um, share around the episode if you'd be so kind. That definitely helps uh, the show. Take care and um, speak to you soon. Bye-bye.